about then is optimism and pessimism in the Old Testament. And it will be brought to you by the aforementioned doctor in the house, Dr. Eddie Anorga. Now, Dr. Eddie Anorga is our last ruling elder candidate of today. I know, ah, sad. But don't worry, he's followed by the pastor, the minister. All right, Dr. Eddie has been in family practice in the South Bay, that's where we at, yo, for over 30 years. Yeah, heavy. Remember, medicine, godly medicine, good stuff. And he would like me to invite all of you warmly via Zoom to a Wednesday evening family Bible study that he hosts and leads, and a Thursday morning, and it's early, men, men's Bible study. So, you wanted me to let you know about that? I'd like to just say that whether you all know it or not, he's the reason why we're all here. He launched these conferences. So let's give him a warm round of applause and welcome Dr. Adianorga. Energy. Well, welcome to Branch of Hope, where the engineer teaches you about medicine and the doctor is going to teach you about how well engineered the temple was. In that case, we better pray. Uh, thank you, God. Uh, just so appreciate seeing um, the lay people in the church uh, come up and give such excellent presentations. Um, I have nothing but hope that your word will accomplish its purpose. In Jesus' name. So I'm going to talk about optimism and pessimism in the Old Testament. And rather than leave you on a pessimistic note, I'm going to talk about the pessimism first, and then we'll get to the optimism. So in our Thursday morning Bible study, uh, we've been going through the Old Testament. We've been kicked out of the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, we survived the, um, the flood and judgment in, in the boat. Uh, we've been wandering through the wilderness. Uh, we've uh, entered into the promised land. And now we've gotten to the point where the kings, the kings have been established. And uh, uh, Part of the high point of the Old Testament is really under, at least for the nation of Israel, is under the rule of Solomon. Uh, you know, the enemies have been uh, kind of subdued. You know, God has given the nation of Israel rest, and they've made this temple. And this temple is actually a great development in the history of redemption, you know, that, that there's actually a physical place that represents God and where we would worship God. Now, before you get a little too excited and think that I'm advocating for a new temple, we understand that in the Old Testament that, um, that, that uh, there, these physical realities are representational for a spiritual reality that undergirds them. Uh, so really, this physical temple is just a picture. It's a representation, and that what we're looking for is worship of one God in a particular way. And the temple is just representative of that, that we would be united in worship in both who we worship and how it is that we worship him. So um, you've all understood that um, Sol the story of Solomon. So he comes into, into the kingdom. Um, you know, it's right after David survives the uh, Philistine collusion hoax. And then uh, 
We see that uh, David's son was effectively prosecuted and his hard drive found and he's, uh, he's uh, for his immorality. And Solomon himself, he actually um, is able to, to demonstrate election fraud and gets rid of, uh, who was it? I think it's Abinadab. Uh, who was who was falsely labeled as king, and he comes into the kingdom, uh, but we don't see what happens with the rule of Solomon until after uh, he passes away, and uh, we see glimmers of that that Solomon wasn't the guy who actually read Deuteronomy 17 because he multiplied wives, he multiplied gold, he multiplied uh, uh, chariots, all the things that that uh, he should not have done. And with this, uh, we see eventually that the land is is uh, sent to captivity. So um, let's move a little bit forward to Jeremiah 6.16, where it says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where's the, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise if you thought back. Actually, it's great. Jason and I work out together every morning. We're thinking, we're thinking alike more and more. He's on Deuteronomy 28. I'm moving to now Deuteronomy 30, uh, where, where um, Moses is laying before them blessing and curses, and he's telling them, choose life. And uh, all the promises and all of the uh, curses are set. But uh, in Deuteronomy 31, just the next page over, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So even there, in spite of the fact that Moses is laying out the blessings and the cursings, God's telling them they're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Uh, and then later uh, in Joshua, at the end of Joshua's reign, after they've gone into the land, they've had all types of victory. And uh, in Joshua 24, it says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father." the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then after that, you hear the people rejoice and, and kind of respond, yes, yes, and we're going to do that too. But as you start to see the development in Judges, by Judges 10, it talks to us about how the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And in those days, a little bit later, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the, ends of the ending of judge, Judges, you think like, oh, well, there's no king. Maybe the solution to this is to have a king, you know, a king like all the other nations knowing that actually that they had a king. You know, that king was Yahweh, and that he alone is the one who will bring about, uh, bring forth justice, righteousness, and flourishing. And we see that when we turn into Samuel at the time of, uh, in the first Samuel, when they announced that, that there will be a king. 
uh, in 1 Samuel 8, 7, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they, not, they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. So the design is that God would be the king over them and not a king like the rest of the nations that will lead them into the battle. And then it goes on to say, basically, what will happen is that the king is going to use the resources of his kingdom to make things better for him. He's going to take from, you know, from the people and use that. He's going to take the char- best of their chariots, the best of their lands, the best of their servants, what for their own purposes, which is the opposite of what it says in Deuteronomy 17, where they should make a copy of the law and then read it every day. Why? So that they don't think that they're greater than their brethren. So the first thing is that first failure is the failure of the kings, and we see that as the history of redemption goes on. We, we kind of see the high point in Solomon and this temple, which kind of gives us a unified place of worship, and then uh, it goes downhill from there. Just like in Judges, it begins with kind of like an okay judge. And by the time you get to the end of Judges, it's like it doesn't work. Uh, so as we do this study, we realize like this is about how, kind of like what uh, Aaron was saying, is it's like this is like all the ways that man-centered leadership fails. You know, it's like it's a study on how, how, to, how not to do this. Um, uh, and then in... Uh, in Second uh, Chronicles, uh, it talks about priestly disappointments. So not only do, are the kings going to disappoint us, but there's also, secondly, a priestly disappointment. Second Chronicles, it says, Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord and the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made priests for yourself like the people of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not God's. And a little later in Chronicles, it says, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without teaching priests and without law. Thirdly, there were also false prophets. So we see, you know, kings that are ineffective. You see priests that were ineffective. And thirdly, there were false prophets. In Jeremiah 14, it says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I do not send them, nor do I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, a worthless divination, and a deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall come upon the land, by sword and famine, the process shall be consumed. And as you can see, this is the opposite of flourishing. And then later in Jeremiah, it says, For both the prophet and priests ply their trade through the land and have no other knowledge. And finally, in the Old Testament, we see corporate ignorance. You know, that the people themselves, because they have false prophets and they have poor priests, and they're not worshiping the right God, and their leaders are corrupted. In Jeremiah 4.22, it says, For my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they do not know. 
And Hosea is great at this. He says in, uh, in Hosea 4, 1 through 3, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and how all who dwell on it languish, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So we see how bad sin is, how bad it is when we fall into idolatry. It's just this cascade that not only affects people, it affects the creation around us. And we even read through the Old Testament how when people do the abominations of the people that are there, that they will be vomited out of the land. And finally, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So you might wonder in the Old Testament, you know, was anybody saved? And we know that from Hebrews, you know, by faith, you know, all the Old Testament saints, all the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to and having faith in the promises of God. Yet at the same time, you see all of this failure in the Old Testament. Uh, at the same time, we also see a glimmer of hope in the, uh, in the Old Testament. We read about the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, that Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations, that Moses uh, talks about a prophet that's going to be even greater than Moses, and that a child will, uh, that will be the prince of peace will have an ever-growing government. And in Isaiah 42, a servant that will bear our, uh, 53, a servant that will bear our iniquities, and in Isaiah 42, that he will be relentless in bringing forth justice and truth. We read about the branch of Jesse upon whom the fullness of the Spirit will dress, and that, of course, would be the Messiah. So how do we reconcile this optimism in the face of pessimism that we read about in the Old Testament? Could it be that there's something lacking in the Old Testament uh, and that the Old Testament, there is a message that's sufficient for individual salvation, but there's something lacking for corporate and national redemption and restoration? Now, it may seem that I've Okay, maybe I'm being a little critical of the Old Testament here. I'm not. I'm just being. I'm just. I'm just thinking about the Old Testament as a foundation on which the house is ultimately going to be built. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament is bad. It just means that it's only a foundation, and that there's a need of something more than what's being revealed in the Old Testament. And that's kind of where we're going here. The Old Testament itself testifies to this in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So let's take a look at that. You've all read Jeremiah 31, and it's even quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews chapter 8. I think in chapter 10 too. Hebrews chapter 8, where it talks about you know a new and better covenant. So in Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31, it's kind of nice and convenient that it has the 31 31 thing. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each um, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So here in Jeremiah, we see this promise of a new covenant, and that the product of that new covenant would be as though everybody is going to know the Lord. And that everybody's going to trust in the Lord. We see uh, later in Ezekiel um, is that for the sake of God's holy name, Ezekiel 36, that um, he is going to vindicate the people. uh, He's going to vindicate his name by blessing the people of Israel. And he's going to take them from the nations and gather them together. And moving on to Ezekiel 36, 25, it says, I will sprinkle clear, clear, clean water on you. And remember when you hear that, uh, Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives. You know, wash them with the water of the word. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then ultimately, the result of that is going to be, you read a little bit further in Ezekiel 36, it says that the land that was desolate will become like the Garden of Eden. So we've kind of gone full circle here from Eden to Eden. And so that the result of God's outpouring of his spirit will persuade people that God's commands are the best thing for them. And the result of that will be a corporate flourishing. So the, the writers of the Old Testament are looking forward to the time when the knowledge of the Lord will lead to corporate and national flourishing, but that there is a need for a new covenant and for the Spirit of God to be indwelling within the people. And we know from the New Testament that the new covenant is a better covenant in that it's sealed by the blood of Christ, who is the pinnacle of revelation, and therefore the end of authoritative revelation from God. So not only do we have a new covenant and a new testament, we have the necessary authoritative and sufficient revelation from God. And that's very important to undo this problem of false prophets. You know, we have the completion of Scripture, we have the completion of revelation in Christ, and that undoes the the likelihood that there's going to be that there's going to be at least within the well they will come in but hopefully we'll recognize them as false prophets because we will test everything that they have to say against the the finality of authoritative revelation that's given us in scripture so this is a really important point in the old testament they have these prophets showing up and they would say thing and all, all they could do is say well well let's see if it happens or not now if somebody comes to prophesy we have to test that 
against what was already said in Scripture. You know, are these ideas that are subordinated to Scripture, or are these ideas that are separate from Scripture? Uh, we also have the clearest revelation of God himself in Jesus Christ. And so, um, so we, have, we have in Christ the clearest revelation of Yahweh, who we should be worshiping, not a particular place, but as a person whom we should be worshiping, who's revealed himself through his word and, um, and through his spirit. Now, also within the New Covenant, if you get to Acts chapter 2, you see another huge development in the history of redemption, and that is the outpouring of God's Spirit. And the consequence of that is it emboldens Peter, who was hiding, you know, who's trying to talk his way out of Christ with a little girl, is now emboldening him to preach the gospel. And because of that, many people would be saved. And as you read through the book of Acts, you know, the refrain is, and the word of God grew, and the word of God spread, and the word of God grew. So you see this flourishing of the word of God. And so, um, after all, it's the spirit of God that gives us wisdom and understanding. He's a spirit of counsel and might. He's a spirit of knowledge and fear or reverence of the Lord. So in the New Testament age, we have something that's different from the Old Testament age. We have the true king, you know, the, 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 the uh, obedient son of God. We have, a true, we have a true body of prophecy from God, and we have the spirit. And all that coming together is what will help lead us, which puts us in a much better position to bring forth all of these promises you know, this, these promises from a God that's faithful to continue to walk by faith and not by sight, and that we would be given the power to do God's will here on earth as it's being done in heaven. And on that note, I'll, I'll go ahead and pause and stop, and I'm hoping that Pastor Paul is there. There he is right there. So off we go. Thank you.